From 11FS, I'm Sarah Kashansky, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you ING's money laundering fine, Funding Circle's ICO and Monzo's 1 million customers, and my love affair with Marcus. All this and much, much more on today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with the good people from Microsoft Azure. My name is Sarah Koshansky and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host for the first time ever, Lida Glyptis. How are you doing today, Lida? I'm great. My first one on this side of the microphone. Uh, yeah, you're, you're kind of semi-in-charge now. I'm looking to you to, to help me control this lot. Don't say things like that. <laughs> um, so we're coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Old Gate in London. Don't forget, if you have any questions for us, drop us an email at podcast at 11fs.com or find us on social media. As always, we are not alone. We are joined in the room by some fantastic guests. We have Joy McKnight, Deputy Editor at The Banker, making her debut. How are you today, Joy? Very good. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we have uh, making a return visit, Helen Panzerino, MD at Rainmaking Collab. How are you today, Helen? I'm making it rain, Sarah. <laughs> Please don't do that. Um, and last, by no means least, we have Angelique Schutten, Global Board Member at Open. How are you today, Angelique? Very well. Thank you so much. Okay, without further ado, let's start the show. So the first story today uh, is titled, Dutch Bank ING will pay $900 million dollars for failing to spot money laundering stories from Reuters. Um, so Dutch bank ING admitted criminals have been able to launder money through its accounts and agreed to pay 775 million euro or 900 million dollars to settle the case. Of the settlement, 675 million euro was as a fine and 100 million the return of illicit gains, prosecutors said. Uh, so Dutch financial crime prosecutors said ING had violated laws on preventing money laundering and financing terrorism structurally and for years by not properly vetting the beneficial owners of the client accounts and by not noticing unusual transactions. Um, ING's chief executive, Ralph Hammers, said no individual at the bank was found to be responsible for the failures, but all had, in fact, personally benefited. But the bank has taken measures against around 10 employees. Um, the fine is not ING's first for failing to prevent illegal transactions. In 2012, it paid a penalty of $619 million for facilitating billions of dollars worth of payments through the US banking system on behalf of Cuban and Iranian clients. Uh, so I don't know who wants to go first. Maybe Angelique, you're Dutch. Do you have thoughts on this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pick at the Dutch again. Huh? Um, no, I, yeah, if you look at it at a country, you know, it's a huge number. And I think that's the issue. It, the number is so huge that normal people at the, at the street, they don't grasp what it's about. And to be honest, there is no really malicious activity in, involved in this fraud. Not like what happened a couple of years ago with HSBC, that people were deliberately misspelling uh, data and then it wouldn't get flagged. But companies like this, they really, really struggle to get all these billion and million transactions and analyze it. The, the systems are just too old to process all these big, big numbers. And I think that's the issue at those banks. Um, and if you look at well, anti-money laundering, most people don't find that very sexy. They rather launch like a new Clio or something, a new app or something. But money laundering is not sexy and it requires really whiz kids to tackle this problem. And where are those whiz kids? And do they want to focus on AML? It's a very good point, and and the detail that has come out on on exactly how this transpired is terrifying in in its banality. How easy it would be for it to happen in any bank, because it wasn't a failure in the algorithm, it wasn't a failure of control. It was just a simple fact that the structures and the processes were analog and paper based, and it was just 
not possible to look at everything in every single transaction. So spot checks allowed for holes in the system. And uh, although AML on this side of the law is not sexy, as Angelique points out, it's actually quite attractive on the other side. And uh, <laughs> and we're seeing quite a lot of creativity and innovation being applied uh, from the fraudster side. And, and as somebody pointed out in a conference I was at a couple of days ago, the fraudster is not going to go get a day job, right? You, you, you close a loop in one place, they're going to find another one somewhere else. Um, so I, I'm finding myself in my, my first podcast as uh, a non-banker uh, speaking in defense of the bankers. But, um, but I think the, the numbers are shocking. You're right. And, and for the man on the street, those numbers feel huge. Um, but the reality is that collectively as a community, this should be sobering because the, the reality of it happening again somewhere else is, is super high. But I think that's the issue, isn't it? It's not just ING that's had the problem. Think of Danske Bank, uh, which lost its CEO over the same kind of anti-money laundering through the Baltics and things. And obviously there's a whole history. It's not, you know, Sarah talked about ING in 2012, but you can, you know, in Europe, you can name all the banks. And what I'm wondering is, on one hand, you know, a lot of banks are talking about the new technology that they're using, like artificial intelligence and machine learning to pick up fraud and anti and, and money laundering and stuff. But obviously, you know, it's not quite working in that sense. But on the other hand, you have, you have to also look at, if you look at it on a European level and things, what is the European regulators doing, right? They seem to be now really coming to bear on the banks, but, you know, they should have been on top of this, I think, a little bit before. And also then the third thing is around the prosecution of the criminals, right? So, you know, uh, you know, you have to have that teeth. And I think the EBA is now putting this forward is giving, you know, is, is the European uh, Union is giving more teeth to the regulators to actually pursue the criminals themselves, because that's the other deterrent. Yeah, I mean, the, the people who are paying the money back here are ING. And, you know, there is an argument that ING let it happen, or for whatever reason, whether that was negligence or old systems, whether they just couldn't prevent it. I mean, there's an interesting stat in our notes, which says, uh, this figures from the UN, which says we only detect 2% of global money laundering. So, you know, hitting the bank is teaching them a lesson to some extent, but actually they're not the people perpetrating this. And how do we focus on catching them? And I guess, as Lita says, it's like whack-a-mole. Like, you get one and then there's 70 others and they come up with, and every time you think you come up with a creative way to stop them, they'll come up with an even more creative way to, to, to find a way around it. And it raises a very interesting um, and almost unsolvable point from a bank's point of view that um, for the for the proficient and professional fraudster, they're smart enough to be breaking the law in a jurisdiction far, far away from where they reside. So unless you have law enforcement collaboration cross-border, you can't catch them even if you find them. Um, so in defense of the banks, um, it is easier to, to catch the bank because they have a custodianship and guardianship duty, which they failed at. Okay, fine. Um, are they the true perpetrators? No. Will punishing them stop this from happening? No. But unless you collaborate cross-border at a huge scale, even if you know who the perpetrators are, you can't get to them. I think the um, the interesting thing here as well is so 
I guess that this sort of crime is seen as a crime that doesn't really hurt anybody. Uh, so if I move us on to sort of the sub story here, which is a crime that very much does hurt people, you can kind of see why maybe banks f- focus less of their attention on money laundering and more on um, the, the, you know, the, the, the painful aspect, I suppose, as far as their customers are concerned. So this second story comes from the BBC News website, and it is half a billion pounds was stolen from UK banking customers in H1 2018 alone. So industry, industry group UK Finance said that 145 million pounds of that was due to authorized push payment or APP, uh, APP or app scams. <laughs> just my brain just blanked on that. But basically, you end up being conned into sending money to another account. And um, the thing with that is that a lot of it tends to be large sums of money. So people work out you're buying a house, and then when you're sending the deposit for that house to your solicitor, they will intercept your email and, and change the bank details. And that's actually become a very common fraud. But that is, think about the pain that that causes the, the customer, because a lot of banks will say, well, that was your fault, you sent it to the wrong account, like, that's not our problem. And then you've lost the deposit for your house. Um, it goes on to say that the rest of well, another three hundred fifty-eight million pounds was lost to unauthorized fraud, which includes transactions made without account holders' knowledge. Um, I mean, and, and, and kind of that's in, it's my my point, I guess, is that that's where banks feel they have to focus right now because not only are their customers unhappy, but the BBC's picked up on it, and it's it's not sounding good for anybody. I have a very personal interjection here. I, <laughs> I came back from a business trip to New York and found out that somebody from a bank. It's a foreign bank that is here, had opened up an account, has a debit card, PIN numbers, and a national insurance appointment using my address. At the same time, as I was told from British Airways that I was in the hack group, and I very rarely use that for flights. And previous to that, I'd bought my laptop at Curry, so I was in that group as well. So as somebody who <laughs> tries to be careful, obviously working in the industry, the lack of transparency and end-to-end you know, processes for AML, KYC, credit, whatever it is. And, and, and the lack of that security, I, I've now had to spend at least 20 hours either making claims, trying to undo claims, going to the NI people. Try, and the bank in question said to me, oh, just shred it. That's fine. And I, anybody else? And they might have got away with that, obviously, right? But we had to unpick the whole thing and file the complaints and things like that. So on a, I, I mean, I, I work with companies that look at older people who are being scammed, right? There's people like Calgera who have their financial management tool for people who are, who are heading into dementia. But when it happens to you, and now I'm on Experian, Equifax, you know, all the other things that you can be on checking constantly. And then, of course, Experian has a hack. Was it Experian or Equifax? Equifax? It was, it was and Equifax. I was on Equifax Hacks. when that hacked as well. I've had it. I've, I've just been hacked off. I'm going to follow you around. <laughs> <laughs> You're a case I'm hacked off. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you raise a very interesting point. Because I've, I've had several, um, several bad experiences with almost every high street bank over the last 20 years. Some deeply comical, some very mundane. And invariably, you get to the point where to resolve it, you have to pull out the long words and and sort of start quoting chapter and verse from the regulation because the person you're interfacing with, let's just say, are not in their dream job and don't necessarily have all that knowledge. But you uncover not just the gap on the banking side, but also the vulnerability on the consumer side, because not everyone is Helen Panzerino. Not everyone Mm -hmm. knows where the bank has fallen down. 
Yeah, and, and I think there are also um, some grey areas in the law where the bank actually, whether ethically it has the right, but legally it does have the right to say, you sent that money to the wrong account, that's not our problem. We send you, you know, the bank will turn around and say, we send you letters and text messages and push notifications saying, don't hand out your password, you know, double double check the person calling you is actually your, you know, your bank's number, all that kind of stuff. But in the heat of the moment, when you're going through your emails, it's not, and especially if the email's coming from like a solicitor or, uh, you know, another third person party should there be more accountability on the banks for that kind of thing i I don't know should the should the banks be making it harder for that to happen by providing more secure ways of transferring your money um it's 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 hard to know where where how to solve the problem basically whose problem it is to solve and how to solve it but i think the banks are in the perfect position to try and solve it and i think some banks are doing some interesting things especially when you talk about things like phishing or social um engineering those kind of attacks like the app attacks and stuff i think all the education that they can do is really important but we had this discussion i was at the ft live event just a couple of days ago and we were discussing it we had a we had like an incumbent bank and a and a um, and a challenger bank on the on the panel talking about what do you do when you know when this happens when a breach happens a data breach happens and like do you send a text message because to be honest sometimes people would ignore it do you phone them and say look this is what is happening and that's what some of them are doing do you do it through the app which is maybe a bit more secure but do the uh, banks have that, uh, you know, especially the incumbent banks, do they have that functionality? I think Can they do people, that? Sorry, I think people also just don't trust anything anymore. So anytime I get any kind of text from my bank, I'm like, no, nope. it's my bank. <laughs> That's like, true. I got a text from my bank the other day, uh, an alert which I've never had before, which was like, if you pay any money into your credit card this month, it won't count towards this month's balance. Because basically it was my statement had gone out and there was that seven day window. But I've never had that text message before. I definitely didn't change any settings. So I was looking at this message and going... Well, I have no idea whether that's actually come from the banking question or not. So there's so many. And the thing is, there's so many. We've just covered four different types of fraud, like in one sentence. So you've got you've got data hacks, you've got um, app scams, you've got, uh, you know, fraudulent accounts, you've got data identity being stolen. It, again, this feels like another game of whack-a-mole. <laughs> like every time you squash one, something else pops up. It is. But, but um, from the consumer's perspective, I mean, we have a situation where... Um, all of us have suffered at least one or two or five instances, but chances are no more than that over a period of 5, 10, 20 years. Unless you're Helen. Whereas, unless you're <laughs> Helen, and I'm never banking with you. Um, just tell me where you are and I'll... See Italian. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think the interesting thing is, from a consumer perspective, I mean, I've had it happen to me four or five times over a period of two decades. Um, it was traumatic and difficult and exhausting, Um The reality that is equally traumatic on the bank side is that it happens several times a day. And therefore, from a data aggregation perspective, they're in a much better position to carry responsibility for that. The regulator expects them to carry responsibility for that. And there is a duty of care in financial education, which we're not seeing. And it ties the two stories together beautifully. I would almost care less to see a fine and more to see a... Obligation to spend that money on financial uh, financial education and actually channeling to to Angelique's earlier point, um, channeling that money to the unsexy but very helpful analytics that will help your grandmother. Um, and it might not be a jazzy app, and it will be invisible, but it will be good. And, and it would be great to see the regulator rather than actually taking the money, saying spend it on that, and I'll keep an eye on you. Yeah. So that's my so, big question is when they get fined, where does all that money go? Oh, well, so, yeah, I mean, 
That's a question we'd like the answer to, actually. I think all of us. Um, some of it is they're covering the cost that's coming out of people's accounts. Because mm. they did say to me, both at American Express and at the bank, don't worry, we'll cover it. I said, that's not my problem. My problem is my identity. Mm. And I'd been to an event on the same day. There's, I think it's called Tessian. There's a company called Tessian where they, there is, they, they, they identified how phishing happens in an email that you don't recognize. So they might put an E on the end of your name or take the E off the end of my name. And you just see something that is pretty recognizable. And then you hit it and then you realize afterwards. And it's very subtle in the way that they do it. So they come out with this technology to try and defend against that. But can you imagine what would happen if that money got invested in actually that they don't focus only on putting lipstick on the pig, but actually fixing the pig? <laughs> Sorry, we're, we're, we're giggling because um, I know that's a quote of yours that I've heard you say before, and I think it's brilliant. <laughs> Fixing the pig and is something I can work with. <laughs> and on that note, I'm going to move us on. Um, so this is a slightly more positive story. Um, this, well, sort of positive. Uh, so we're going back to Funding Circle's IPO. Um, we've got much more detail on it now. So P2P Lender Funding Circle will be valued um, at up to $1.9 billion after its IPO. Um, they've set a price range which is lower than what was initially expected for its IPO. It will now be between 440 pence to 460 pence per share. Initially, they'd said that might go up to 500 plus, um, but obviously that's been revised. Um, the flotation will value the firm up to around 1.5 billion pounds. Um, and in the process of the IPO, it plans to raise 300 million um it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting story i still think it's a sex uh, oh dear i still think it's a success story um but i know that other people have different opinions on this so i don't know if anybody else wants to to chime in yeah i think there are a lot of these 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 platforms and uh, some more successful than the other um the question is they do pay quite high interest rates so i think it's more a last resort uh, where they borrow money and it, it does open up to a certain segment um but the question is is how long will this business model stay and when will the first problem will occur with people uh, having a problem with these big and high interest rates you mean the interest rates for the people who borrow the money from them so um i think for funding circle as far as i understand it their rates are slightly higher than the banks but not a huge amount and they've actually done some some leveling out recently um uh I understand your point. I mean, the, the company actually had to pull out a few years ago of several countries in Europe because those countries were in such trouble that they the, the, the clients that were available to them were not ones the company wanted to take on. So um, exactly to your point, um, I think they've been quite responsible. So they pulled out of Spain um, because the, the clients that were available were not it wouldn't be fair to offer them loans because they knew they weren't going to pay them back. So they've pulled back. They're now in Germany, the Netherlands, the US and the UK. Um I think in terms of, you know, the, the, the model itself, it was filling a gap, you know, in 2008. No, this is because they focus on small businesses. So in 2008, nobody was lending to small businesses. And we saw a plethora of these companies come to the fore. Uh, we have seen quite a few of them fall by the wayside, some spectacularly, some less so. Um, in terms of British fintech, I like, I think it's a success story because I haven't seen a big fintech IPO yet. But I was told that it wasn't that big a few weeks ago and I should calm down. Well, no, don't calm down. <laughs> excitement is good. We like excitement. Um, I find it hard to get excited about the fact that we always focus more on valuations and, and raising than we do on business viability. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not suggesting these guys are not viable, um, but they, they're 
stickiness of their business model is not as robust as these numbers would suggest. And there was a time, and I'm probably dating myself quite badly now, there was a time when these conversations would be really, really separate. And um, the the people who cared about your business viability almost didn't care about your valuation. Um, and, and I kind of long for that time to come back because um, quite a lot of these spectacular success stories from uh, either an IPO perspective or just a raising perspective, not to name names, um, hide or at least obfuscate the stuff that is being transformed by those businesses and confuse the industry a little bit. Yeah, I, th- I think the interesting thing about funding circles is it's been around for quite a while and we've seen them make mistakes and missteps and have to pick themselves back up. So they really messed up in the US. When they went to the US the first time around, they got all their algorithms wrong and it was it was expensive and messy and they had to sort of regroup and retrench and pull a lot of people out. Um, I think the, the interesting thing for me about funding circle, to your point about viability, is that they are still making a loss. They do spend an awful lot of money on marketing. But we have seen successful companies continue to operate at a loss. Um, and they did, they have been continually receiving VC money up until like last year. So, so it's not, I mean, there's always the argument that's pouring money into a, into a well. Um, well, I, I wouldn't necessarily go there and sort of to, to talk over you there, but that's, that's the thing I feel really, really strongly about. Um, it's a sign of the times and it's not going to last. The fact that we can talk of, businesses that are consistently loss-making and kept alive by VC money, it, it, it's, a, it's a contradiction in terms from a, from a business perspective. And from a VC perspective, it's a different set of rules and a different set of metrics and a different horizon they're working to and, and good on them. But from our side of the table, it is extremely misleading to take the fact that they can, they can still keep the lights on because the VC money is pouring in with a business model viability, particularly for companies, not to pick on them, but particularly for companies that have been around long enough that the model should be self-funding by now. Yeah, I, it's an interesting one that I think we will wait and see because I think the IPO will, will be the proof of the pudding, right? Like either either it will work and the company will continue to function or it'll do that wonderful thing or awful thing depending on which side of the fence you're on where the IPO and it goes kaplunk and that's the end of that. Um, it will depend on, you know, people's willingness to buy their shares and if they believe in the business model. Um, I just say, I mean, in general, on peer-to-peer lending or a platform lending, it's still a very small amount of the lending that goes out into the marketplace. Like you, you know, everybody around the table knows I wrote business funding for dummies. SME funding is my passion in life. <laughs> my soapbox story of people not knowing where to go for the right money at the right time at the right price. And it happens repeatedly. They're still using credit cards because they don't want to raise their head above the parapet when they get turned down by a bank. And there will always be some customers that are not going to be bankrupt. Worthy. So they stepped into a space, but it's still small and relative to the overall size. And I think they get a lot of play and a lot of hype and a lot of publicity because of that. But I also wonder what's going to happen when the regulators start to really regulate the peer-to-peer lending space, yes. right? So that, to me, uh, you know, is something to, to keep an eye on because that's going to happen quite soon, I think. Definitely one to watch. Well, um, not to be outdone or, in fact, confused with Funding Circle, Funding Options has um, received some funding. So ING Ventures, the fintech venture capital arm of the Netherlands-based global bank, has taken a £5 million minority equity stake in funding options. Uh, It follows a recent announcement that they're partnering ING in the Netherlands to help Dutch businesses find the right finance for their solution. Uh, We spoke to funding options MD, Ryan Edwards-Pritchard, to find out more. Sure. Um, So funding options is a online marketplace for business finance. So it's a one-stop shop. Uh, We cover 
uh, everything from a unsecured or secured business loan across to asset finance, looking at hard and soft assets uh, over to property finance. And, you know, we can cover like a vast array of sums. So if you look into last month, um, we helped 221 customers get access to around about 12.4 million pounds. Uh, the smallest case that we helped um, fund was literally funded within under an hour um, and was £750 one-off loan, um, all the way to a £3.2 million secured loan. So the technology that underpins our business is uh, analogous to a dating site. You know, and, and I guess that's the kind of simplest way to think of it. Rather than kind of like you know the singletons on either side, uh, we've got small businesses on one side looking for finance, and we've got those lenders there with the pools of capital, you know, ready to give it out. And we are sat in the middle, and we're trying to match make, and and that that's what we do. You know, that's our role. We're delighted to actually announce the investment from ING Ventures. So this is the uh, venture capital arm um, of ING. So they've taken a minority equity stake in the company um, and that also follows the announcement that we had back in june at money 2020 when ralph harmer's uh, the ing ceo was on the main stage um giving his keynote speech and he was talking about uh, marketplace banking and he made the um, announcement that we'll be working together in a partnership and that's going to be helping essentially uh dutch small businesses um get access to finance and it'll be their customers that we'll be actually working with um to help them get access to our panel of alternative finance lenders over in the Netherlands. I guess in terms of our plan, uh we've just launched into the Netherlands uh two weeks ago. We're gonna be launching our partnership with ING in terms of the full integration later this year. Uh, and our focus is really Europe. You know, uh, the age-old problem of being able to get access to finance, you know, isn't just on our shores. It is across Europe. So we're looking at different markets. Um, you know, right now we're looking at Germany, France, Spain, Poland. And we're trying to understand in terms of the ecosystem, in terms of the dynamics of actually the small businesses, in terms of the landscape of alternative finance lenders and, you know, how digitally native they are. And, you know, we are going to be looking over the next 18 months uh, to roll out across multiple different geographies. We believe working with the banks is actually uh, the future for our business. Uh, we're focused solely on that. Um, we believe in terms of small businesses, it's a it's, it's a hard task in terms of uh, going out there and actually looking for uh, the right type of lender, given it any situation. For a lot of customers, their first port of call is actually the banks themselves. Uh, in the UK, um, we've got something called the Bank Referral Scheme. Uh, so this was put in place uh, two years ago by the uh, government, by the Treasury and the British Business Bank. And it's the first time in the world that we've seen a piece of legislation like this. So this is actually mandating the banks, uh, the CMA9, if you may, uh, that any business that they can't help finance, that they refer them onto a designated platform. So we're actually one of those three designated platforms. Now, what we've actually seen is that yeah, a customer will be referred on to us when they get a hard decline. Um, but again, there is some more creative license in what is a hard decline. What we want to do is, you know, we've seen the likes of Monzo, the likes of Starling, the likes of Revolut, who've come in and they've brought in uh, different products from different providers and they've focused on one core capability. And in the same way, we're now talking to the banks going, well, actually, 
why don't you look at this approach, which is what we're calling an alternative yes. So it's always out of hours. And that's, I guess, kind of aspirationally why we're wanting to move towards that 24-7 type of approach. You know, we want to almost kind of look at, you know, and we do, we often look at Amazon, you know, and that ability to help their customers get fulfillment, you know, no matter the, the time of the day, the day of the week, you know, and, and that's kind of, uh, I guess, our North Star as a business is, can we get that to under five minutes? Can we help a customer you know, alleviate that pain? And I guess the kind of future for us is working with those uh, working with those banks to create journeys which are preemptive, they're predictive, they are hyper personalized to the small business owner. So actually, the customer's not needing to come to us. Yeah, you know, we've already identified that there is you know there is something coming ahead, and actually, we're identifying the pain point, and actually, we're serving up the best suggestion for them. Moving us on, uh, our next story is from CTAM, and it's that digital bank Monzo has reached a million current account customers. So. Tom Blomfeld said the milestone shows that there's real mainstream appetite for a bank that's doing things differently. Uh, Monzo now accounts for 15% of all new current account openings in the UK. Uh, Monzo customers now spend uh, 12, uh, all of them, not one of them, uh, £12,000 on their cards every minute, the firm said, uh, with £4 billion in payments made so far. Uh, Monzo's um, apparent unicorn valuation of more than $1 billion, which is £770 million, is expected to be confirmed when it closes its latest round of fundraising, uh, which is more than four times higher than its valuation, which was less than a year ago. Um, I think... The, the for context here, so Revolut says they have around a million customers. Uh, Starling Bank and Tandem both have um, just sort of around two hundred thousand customers, respectively. Um, to me, this this is this is a real success story. Uh, we are going to hear from Richard Cook, the online community manager at Monzo, who's going to tell us a little bit more about this. Cool. So, Richard, um, last week you guys hit a pretty impressive milestone significant in the world of fintech one million users that's really impressive right you guys must be pretty excited yeah we're, we're very excited it's, it's absolutely like something to celebrate and we couldn't be happier to have reached a million users um obviously the monzo mission is to make money work for everyone which means our ambitions are even greater um why not everyone in the world have a monzo card who knows it's i mean yeah absolutely it's a lofty ambition but the reality is that what you guys are doing is resonating with customers on a large scale yeah, and I, I would say that has a lot to do with our focus on community being like the heart of what we do. Um, 80% of our growth comes from word of mouth and referrals, which I think is a testament to how we build things that actually people want and people use. So because we ask our customers what they want and it's a product very much built with and for our community, people feel that real sense of trust. We're very transparent in what we do. And I think that helps, again, people feel like they have a connection with their bank, which they wouldn't typically have, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Uh, and so you think that's been key to the growth? I think when we spoke with um, Tom Blomfield on the show before he's talked about that idea of virality, you know, mm-hmm. building a product that people love and relying on that word of mouth. and, and Yeah, it's, it's very much like rather than just trying to sell people financial products they don't need or want, finding out what they do need and want and, bu- and building those things. So things like joint accounts so recently you may have seen we published a, a big list we called it of uh, 14 features that people the community themselves told us they wanted and we built 11 out of 14 of those within three months and that was mostly driven by community feedback and along the way we were very transparent and shared that roadmap which again i think gives people a reason to sort of talk and shout about monzo and get their friends on it 
And it, but you, you touched on it exactly. Yes, it's fast product development cycles, but it's also transparency. Yeah. And that's key. I mean, from a customer perspective, being able to feed into something, then see it up on a great big board, mm-hmm. and then actually see it get delivered. That's pretty satisfying. Yeah, I, I can imagine the people who like helped us on that way must, must feel like very satisfied to see how, how far we've come. Like, things like joint accounts were a huge request from the community for so long and then we did it we not only built it but we built it out in the open with their feedback and made it really great in the end i love it i mean it's just not what you what we have come to expect from traditional banks right that's the difference but i I think it's the correct way to do it doing everything out in the open getting that trust with your with your community and just like the product is much better as a result Agreed. So we mentioned about maybe everybody in the world having a Monzo card someday. <laughs> what do we think the next major milestone is? It's a good question. So currently, 15% of new bank accounts in the UK are that opened are Monzo accounts, which is like, I, th- I think that's significant. I love that stat. It's so cool, right? That's terrific. So like, if that, if that continues, like if we can push that even further, then I think we could do well in the UK. That's incredibly exciting. Richard Cook, Community Manager at Monzo. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for inviting me. Cheers. Uh, so that was Richard from Monzo. Um, the, obviously, the point that he was making quite repeatedly there was how this was down to, that he used the words virality, community, referrals. So how much of this is down to people, uh, you know, having the product, loving the product, and then making all their friends sign up to the same product. Um, and I, I don't think that you could argue that Monzo hasn't done that successfully. I think they have done that very successfully. Uh, you know, are they the only ones who can do that? Can other people do that? You know, how much are leading? question you took it as a leading question leader so please <laughs> well i'm gonna go my own way because that's what i'm like so um i'm a fan i have made a lot of my friends sign up so um he's right there i i have i have sort of a two by two comment to make on the one hand um not they're not the only one who can do this but they're the ones who are doing it best i was in australia this morning actually which is crazy when you say that loud. <laughs> um and Monzo were the bank people were talking about. Uh, some would reference the others in passing, some wouldn't, but they were, it's the one that's captured uh, people's imagination and it was, it was a very interesting thing. Um, and I have um, had a series of challenging, unhappy paths uh, recently from a change of phone number to a change of device when you have a lot of biometrics and stuff. And I, I have a lot of bank accounts in many jurisdictions and Monzo are the ones who consistently get the journey right. Uh, so... Thumbs up on on both of those things. The flip side um, of that is that we are moving into a multi-banked era. It's it's a given that um, these account openings are not necessarily switches. And we also know that traditional retail banking um, doesn't become profitable until the third product on average. Um, Obviously, the cost of running the business will be lower for a digital bank, but uh, going back to my earlier point, about viability and profitability, I want to see them succeed. Uh, but the average value of deposits and transactions is low. So is this an important milestone? Absolutely. Is it a milestone that gives me comfort that my favorite bank will make it? Uh, not yet. And I do think, just to repeat myself, um, that the valuation celebrations can be dangerous and misleading. I'm not sure, actually, I'd like to put, sort of interject there that I don't think the valuation is necessarily linked to the customer numbers either. I think no, that, that might not. be something Absolutely. of a red herring. Yeah, <laughs> agree, agree. Does anybody else have any thoughts on Monzo? 
Well, I think if you look at Monzo from a marketing perspective, it's, it's brilliantly what they've done. And they're super successful, as you rightfully say. Um, the question is, at one point, they will become, with these numbers, a, a proper proper bank, a real player. And that means they will have to start investing in being a bank. Like, it will take about 25-30% of all their resources on IT just to keep it regulatory compliant. And then all of a sudden, from the 10 points that he said he wanted to develop the wish list, how many of those points will represent regulatory compliancy points? So when will be the tipping point that they will need to shift to w- towards those volumes and keeping it up to speed? I also think that it's, uh, you know, it's a milestone that was hit and it's very important. And if you look at the comparison with the other challenger banks, I think obviously uh, it's uh, Monzo is very for the... F- uh, it's a lot further ahead. Um, but at the same time, again, uh, back to Lida's points about the switching, at the same time, what you see is that what I heard was um, only a fifth of those accounts that they hold are actually that, uh, you know, that the um, account holders actually put in their salary every month, right? And so that says to me that they're still with the incumbent bank and they're using Monzo for certain things as other challenger banks. And I think, back to Lita's point again, which I totally agree with, I think at that point, when they make, when they become the first bank for a lot of people, I think that is, that's the real milestone to hit. And that's when you're going to decide whether it's going to make it or not. And, and yeah. I mean, and I would say I completely agree with you. Um, I don't think a bank has to be the first bank to be successful, but it depends what product you nail your colors to the mast on. And Monzo has done that with a current account. And yes, I'm sorry, but they do have to be the primary account with this. I've gone back and forth in my head with this over over the last sort of like 12, 24 months. And part of me says, well, yes, it's fine because everybody's multi-bank, so you don't have to be the primary account. But if you're going to go out there and say we're going to be the account through which you manage your money, then, then yes, you do have to be the one where the salary is going into. And for me, I love Monzo. I completely agree with you, Lida but it will not be my primary account until I've got everything I need on there. And that isn't an overdraft, that isn't a loan, that isn't money-making products. Um, I need to be able to, you know, get my joint account up and running properly and I need to be able to um, also, you know, get some payback from my deposits because I opened a Marcus account this morning and they give me 1.5% on my savings. So everything's <laughs> gone over there. <laughs> um, but, you know, even without that, like I have other current accounts which which reward me for keeping deposits or I get cash back for using their card. And, you know, actually as somebody who does know how to manage their money because I'm very lucky I've spent years in this industry and I do know how to handle my finances I love Monzo's financial management tools but that's not what I need I actually need to be given something back by my bank and as of yet Monzo is very good at telling me I spend too much at Pratt and has probably curbed my Pratt habit which is good um, but as yet that's not I need a little bit more before I will switch everything over that way arguably though you're you're holding on to an era that's rapidly coming to an end and you will not be rewarded for deposits for much longer, particularly as deposits are only attractive for banks with stupendous scale. Mm-hmm. And um, it is unlikely that any of the challengers will reach that as they grow, particularly as the high street giants are losing the profitability of that scale just from a vanilla treasury perspective. So when that goes and when none of the banks are in a position to reward you for keeping your money there and actually with some flavors of PSD2 landing in some of the smaller markets around Europe, you might end up having to pay for a current account. You might find that the superior user experience will win people over. The question is, will they make the the additional products profitable? If, if that, if and when that happens, when nobody else has given me rewards on my yeah. deposits, then I completely agree. Monzo will become my, my first and foremost account. But in the current environment, we're getting, 
you know, money back from my bank is is the primary primary reason I use them because I'm so annoyed by them. Then you know, and until that disappears, I will keep doing it. Our next story is from TechCrunch, um, and it's that Clio has picked up ten million pounds in a Series A fundraise. So Clio, um, if you don't know what it is, is a London-based, and I'm going to say this with inverted commas, uh, digital assistant that wants to replace your banking apps. So it went over to the US around six months ago. It now has around three hundred fifty thousand US users and six hundred thousands in the UK. Um, they're actually adding thirty thousand users new users a week. They're going to use the money to continue scaling to target new re- regions, including Western Europe, America, the, the rest of America, um, and Australasia. The plan is to hit 22 countries in 12 months, which is ambitious, even by our flying schedules around this table. Um, I don't think we've managed that. They want to become the default interface for millennials interacting with and managing their money. So if you, just for a quick product overview, basically you access it via Facebook Messenger. Um, there's a chatbot which gives you insights into your spending across your all your accounts and your credit cards. It breaks it down by transaction, category, merchant, all that good stuff. Um, and then it, it kind of uh, recommends that maybe you, you have enough money spare this month. You spent less at Pret. Uh, so why don't you put that money into a savings account? Um, which is kind of why it's done so well in the US because they love Facebook Messenger out there. Uh, which is a really, really interesting uh, strategy move um, from, from my perspective because Facebook Messenger is so widely used in the US, it's actually much more widely used than WhatsApp. So kind of going through that channel has done them a huge favour. Um, though the, the everlasting question is, this is all sounds great, you know, expansion, they've got £10 million. It, is, is being a, a Facebook Messenger friend or chatbot enough? I mean, I, I, I think anybody who messages me on Facebook Messenger is my friend, which is probably a problem, but we should dig into that later. Um, but is, is that functionality enough to keep going? Is that a business? I'm the negative one. I'm going to, like, Helen, practice something positive to say because I'm about <laughs> to say something negative. And I'm going to start by saying I actually really like Cleo. I like how they approach what they do. I like the, um, the way they're packaging their product. I like how they're thinking about it. I have two issues. One, um, I actually... My article released today, if you haven't read it, why haven't you read it, is all about... You get to plug later, leader. No, no, it's just that, like, what the hell does millennial producting mean, right? The millennials are uh, almost as old as me these days. It's just not a thing because this product is not targeting, you know, the challenges of the... Uh, pension market and the challenges of the housing market that someone who should be reaching a time of stability and security um, and all the rest of it. So uh, I have a, a, an intrinsic allergic reaction to anything that's targeted uh, for millennials because there's a sort of otherness to, to the term. So that's um, that's one thing. The second thing is that there's a gimmicky feel to it. Um, do you remember like the Facebook aquarium? You oh, could. fish, give your friends right. fish. No one has given me any fish for a very long time. But you know you know what I mean. It's yes. um, There is a time and place gimmicky set of functionalities. I don't think chatbots are going anywhere. But I think uh, deciding to marry yourself to the less successful piece of a highly challenged platform um, might, might not be the, the best path. I think I was one of the first users when they launched and I was excited to see what it could do. And in the beginning, it was really fun. But at the one point, it wasn't bringing me any intelligence. And even it was reminding me of stuff that I was like, yeah, I might need to switch from one phone provider to another because I'm spending too much. But then the switching costs were actually too low for me to actually act on it. And then I questioned myself, what is the business model behind it? And how are they going to make money? 
And one personal thing that I was really frustrated about, signing up is easy. I've been trying for six months to get away from it. And you can't do it via the bot. You can't do it via the website. And I do not like if you make it easy to sign on, make it easy to go away. And that resulted in me saying this. And that's a shame. Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree with you. With a lot of these things, especially with something like a chatbot, people think, oh, it's an easy way to sign, you know, easy thing to try, easy to sign up. You know, I'll just try it for a bit. But also you're linking the financial accounts to that. So it's not like I'm just going to like try this new Pilates class. And if I don't like, I won't go next week. It's, you know, I'm trying it and I'm putting all my financial details in there. And if you can't extract yourself, I completely agree with you that that is a serious problem. And you've now told more than nine people. Am I, am I right? I don't use it, but am I right in assuming that you, you can get uh, free credit reports and you can look at loan repayment calculators that they hook you in with free forms of things that are allegedly useful for you and then you're, and then you're in. So more of the signups come via the fact that you're actually searching for how can I, how, what's my loan repayment schedule or how, how long will it take me to repay or can I get a free credit report? And then you wind up there. Well, when I signed up, it was more about analyzing the data from my bank account. So it would give me a summary on what I was spending. So how much did I spend at the subway? How much, uh, what I was spending on my gin and tonics? Um, and it gave me analysis like, oh, wow, I am a feeder and I do like my food and drinks. Um, but it wasn't actually doing a lot after that. And maybe it has evolved the past year, but I haven't used it because I was so annoyed because I couldn't get away. I think I think what, and all that stuff that you just said that you really like about it is the stuff that we all really like about Monzo. And I think what is absolutely key to any of these kind of personal finance management or digital money management tools is they need to be within your core banking proposition. They need to be front and center and they need to be linked to everything else. I don't want it in a separate app or in a separate, you know, channel, a separate messenger channel. I want it where everything else is. And if, you know, we get to that that situation, which, you know, Monzo or Starling would love, where Monzo is the only app I ever open because it's connected to everything else, then that's where I want my analysis. That's where I want to know I spend too much on whatever it is because that's where I can switch my account to another account. Well, that's where I can see, you know, actually your analysis is it's fine if you spend that much on gin and tonics because you've got this much disposable income a month so go for it knock yourself out and by the way here's somewhere that'll give you a discount on gin you know that's yes <laughs> and here's a discount in gym membership i think you're, i think you're absolutely right the other thing that that my favorite monzo gets right but but also some of the other challenges are actually also getting equally right is uh balancing very good ux with staying a little bit out of your way and the um the solutions that are integrating with social media a bit too heavily uh, are counting on increased touch points. And, and a bit like the Facebook aquarium, the, the fun wears off after you've played around with it for, for a little bit. And then what you want is for your financial services to, to vanish into the background. And that integration with something that you use for fun and for chatting to your sister um, doesn't sit well with minimizing contact. But also, don't you think in some ways that they're trying to emulate WeChat? in China, right? And so everything is in one app. And I think a lot of banks who are, because I do know some banks that are looking, and incumbent banks, that are looking about how to, you know, be where the customer is in their social media and on the different social media platforms and things. Um, but then you come down to that question of like, do you want, as a bank, do you want to be the app or do you want to be within a platform where everyone else is? So... I think that's where a lot of them... When you find the answer to that, yeah, would yeah. you tell us so we can all make our millions? I think, it, I think it's the, you know... It's going to charge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and on that note, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be back very shortly. 
Is mind control the tech industry's greatest invention? That's one of the questions the Financial Times FT Weekend is currently asking. Each week, FT Weekend brings together an intelligent mix of news, compelling stories, and global lifestyle journalism. To read the article on mind control and a selection of other articles, visit ft.com forward slash open minds. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets, on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider by 11FS. Before the break, we were talking about Clio breaking into America. And we're going to break into America too. Uh, Well, we've actually been invited. We're not actually going to break in. Uh, But Fintech Insider will be at Money 2020 in Las Vegas. We're proud to announce that we'll be hosting not one, but two live shows from Money 2020 itself that you'll get to hear after the event. If you're based in the US and want to watch the live shows, then tickets to Money 2020 are available now. If you use the code 11FS250, you'll save $250 from the usual ticket price. That's 11FS250. So we will see you there. Now on with the show. Talking about America, turns out that the US is way behind the curve on open banking. That's according to American Banker. So in the US currently, there's no legal requirement stipulating a financial institution must make a consumer's financial data available to a third party in the event that a consumer provides affirmative consent. Uh, They must provide the customer with access to their own data. Uh, For now, that's a right that's enshrined in Dodd-Frank, although how long that continues to be the case um, is up for uh, questioning. Um, that said, that consumers in the US do actually do actually want open banking. Um, by 2017, 87% of individuals preferred to adopt a fintech application rather than use a product or service offered by a traditional financial services provider. Um, but today, US consumers' ability to use those applications can be restricted or outright blocked. So we've seen this a couple of times um, that, uh, but particularly with the small business um, uh finance tools and people like Mint, um, they had accessed, uh, with the customer's consent, customer data from the likes of JP Morgan and then they, and Wells Fargo, and then those big banks just turned around one day and said, nah, and turned it off. And the customers were like, but wait, we wanted that. Um, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody that uh, things are a little bit confused in the United States, particularly on a regulatory perspective. Um I mean, I guess there's a couple of questions here. One is that, you know, do we do we think that open banking as a concept is one that the Americans are, are going to adopt and keen to adopt anytime soon? Or are they all still too worried about actually getting a bank that doesn't charge them huge fees? Um, and second, you know, if that is what people want, how do we make it happen? Answers on a postcard. I mean, there is, there is the obvious problem of having, what, around 30 regulators? and federal and state level of regulators. And although people poo-pooed their latest uh, treasury reports, or I I think we're making, they seem like baby steps to the rest of the world. And Sarah, I know you feel that way. I think in the US, it's a relatively conservative place. It's all 
apportioned off and there's checks and balances for a reason, that was a big step for them. And if I look at something like Varro with, you know, a national charter and the fact that people are now looking at sandboxes and not thinking of them as play places, I think we're making progress. I think we are way behind, obviously, because of all these levels of regulation. Um, but when I was there last time and I was down with the Commerce Department and with the OCC, we had conversations around the fact they're aware that people like Monzo and Starling and Revolut are all nipping at the heels. And the question came, can we do it in America? Can we get an American to do it? Rah, rah, rah. No. <laughs> I'm also an Italian. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> you, you put me in the unexpected position of, of, of being the optimist in the room, which is um, <laughs> I, I don't know what kind of sample was questioned uh, for that 87% um, statistic, but that's a staggering number considering that open banking landed here and there wasn't exactly a stampede, right? And we didn't expect a stampede. Um, the, the financial maturity that comes with wanting that kind of transparency and knowing how to use it um, will come in time. So if the US is in a position where, and again, you know, massive caveat on how that 87% was calculated. But if the US um, gets to a place where the consumer reaches a level of maturity that actually demands this, the transformation will be much more rapid and, and in some ways much more meaningful if it's if it's um, user-driven. That's, I mean, that's, that was my question was going to be, you know, do we have to have the regulators behind it or can we have the consumers push it forward? We'll eventually need to have the regulators behind it, particularly to Helen's point, to, to, to harmonize against um, all the various regulators in play, uh, both from a geography perspective and from a layering perspective. Uh, but it will be a very interesting change to the global trend because we're seeing open banking becoming a thematic trend, but not one that the consumers have demanded for. It's in the name of and for the consumer, um, but um, invariably lands before the consumer is ready for it. So it would be interesting to see um, that happen in reverse in the US with a, with a massive set of geeky questions about sampling for that 87%. The second thing that would be a very Don't interesting... Don't trust any research or <laughs> elections or anything else in the US. Well, well, this they is it, focus uh, on building walls. It's 15% of all statistics are made on the spot, right? Um, <laughs> As the researcher in the room, <laughs> I would like to say that I did read that statistic out blindly and I have not checked the facts and that upsets my... I'm, I'm upset with myself. So, so there, there, the there will be size. a sampling sampling question, right? And how big was the sample and how representative and all the rest. However, it's a, it's a massive number. Um, and what I was going to say... Um, is, is very interesting um, there is that retail banking in the US is a different planet compared to, to actually the rest of the world, not just um, Europe. But not the rest of banking. The rest of banking is actually pretty harmonized, uh, both because of commercial interlinking and because the, the big stuff have to uh, plumb together. Um, so it will be a very interesting situation that might actually bring retail banking in the US closer to how the rest of the world is playing and we might see some global consolidation happening on the back of that. Because I, I think uh, it's a I think it's not just about the regulators, obviously, um, in terms of the complexity of the environment. It's also the complexity of the banking environment in terms of the number of banks in the US, which is just like, you know, 10,000 or something banks. Um, so I think that's of interest. But I do think that even though maybe as a whole industry, the US is a bit further behind, obviously, there's some leading banks. And so you have the big global banks like the cities, the Bank of America, Maryland, of this world, Wells Fargo, and stuff that have been developing. If you think about open banking as uh, 
you think about open banking as uh, open application programming interfaces. Sorry, I'm getting a bit... <laughs> please continue, Joy, and please ignore the two people around the table who are pulling faces at you. But anyways, but they have, if you think about open banking in terms of open application programming interfaces, obviously those big banks have been doing that for a long time. Um, I think, which uh, we haven't mentioned, which is around the real-time payments, which were launched in November, I think that will actually drive forward the adoption of open APIs, but also then in that sense, the adoption of open banking as well. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, I, I am of the belief that open banking as a concept rather than a legal construct is, is a trend that we will continue because it ties into the broader open data movement, which is the, the desire of, of consumers who are increasingly waking up, uh, to, to the fact that they don't necessarily know where their data is, what it's being used for. And when they don't know those things, the problems that can come from that, as Helen mentioned earlier, if you've got data all over the place and you get hacked seven times in one day, then good. God, you're unlucky. But also, um, people, people are aware of this now all of a sudden and the, the kind of desire to be like, well, I don't actually want you to have that data. And actually, I want to be able to control who has that data and when. Um, I think that that will feed into open banking, but I do think we are looking at a very, very long runway here. I, 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 I'm, I'm optimistic that we will see, um, more interesting and exciting products come out of this. I think that we're just at those really, really painful um, first steps, which we're just going to have to keep pushing through and which probably, as Leader said, will require regulators to force through before we get to the, the exciting parts. Mm. Yeah, but it's also interesting because it it gives um, like not just the big banks, but actually the smaller banks and the regional banks, uh, open banking will give them access to development that they will not be able to fund themselves and developers, right? That they won't be able to have access and fund themselves. And so even that will give them, if they think about it, it will actually give them a competitive advantage that they wouldn't normally have. Um, so I have to say, I think, I think you know, the, um, the article is right on one level, which is the U.S. is a bit far behind, but I do think it can catch up quite quickly. And if you think, to latest point, if you think about the, sort of the movement in Australia, uh, you know, obviously in Europe and UK has already uh, implemented open banking as such, maybe it hasn't, uh, you know, as you see the movement across the world, you know, accelerate, uh, I think what we'll, we'll see is a lot of the US banks started to perk up their ears. And you see it some um, in some of the smaller banks already thinking about how to develop their own, you know, developer API, developer portal and things like that in the US. And the more successful the companies here in Europe become using it and that consumers get used to it, that will also jump across the ocean and will inspire, hopefully, and also empower the banks to take charge. And, and there's no reason that you shouldn't be a fast follower. And if you're JP Morgan Chase, you can be a very fast follower. Well, there's also the, the very interesting position that we're, we're watching open banking unfold in, in the jurisdictions where it's landed. And, and there is a belief, and we'll see if it's right or wrong, that the, the mid-sized players will benefit first. And, and it opens monetization opportunities that are more real for the mid-sized players. But the big boys are going to have to comply because they're going to have to comply. But then it puts the big boys in an extremely advantageous position to just export the learnings and stretch the infrastructure and be and be good to go and really change that story in the US should they choose to go that way. Well, let, let's stick with a US theme story. Um, the next story comes from BBC News again. Um, and the headline here is that Goldman Sachs wants your piggy bank. I don't think I've ever heard a more British headline. Um, that, that's not a US story. That's a Sarah love story. 
Okay, well, let me let me explain the story and then we can discuss my relationship with Marcus. Um, Goldman Sachs U.S. Savings Bank, which is uh, named Marcus after Goldman Sachs's original founder, um, has come to the UK. So, um, in the U.S., uh, this uh, retail of Goldman Sachs has done incredibly well. So, it, it both uh, lend it offers lending products and it is offers high interest savings accounts. Um, thus far, it's attracted $20 billion worth of savings in two years, um, pretty much because it has the best rates on the market. It's very, very easy to open an account. Um, and it's an easy access online savings account. So you can put money in and take it out as and when you wish, um, which is uh, in the UK, particularly um, really interesting, because in the UK, the highest interest uh, rates tend to be paid on accounts where your money is locked in for a period of time. Um, I'm, I'm going to put it out there that the love story here comes from something that Helen mentioned earlier, which and, and also the way that they've done this. Goldman were like, we're going to do retail. And by God, did they do retail. They came out of the gates running. They have a platform that works very, very well. They have very competitive rates. Their onboarding process is incredibly smooth. Tell um, us if you like this app because I can't work it out. You know what? There is no app. That's what I don't like. Oh. Yeah, it's mobile what? browser only. <gasps> And what's weird as well to a British user is that when you go to sign up for an account, it has the American KYC questions in there. So it's like, how much do you earn? What industry you work in? And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why do you need to know that? We're used to people like Monzo who just say, where do you live? What's your phone number? What's your name? And give you my passport. They don't need to know how much I earn or like what industry I work in. Um, so it's a slightly strange. Uh, Admittedly, it is, it is for a current account, so so the questions are different. But uh, but no app. I, I might need to, to to lie down and get over that for a second. Well, you can have a think about it. Um, whilst we ask uh, everybody else what they think, quite clearly, I think it's very well executed. I think it's an interesting proposition. To go back to Joy's point earlier, though, um, why Goldman are have a moved so quickly and so heavily into the retail space and b why they have brought that proposition from the us to the uk uh are questions that i would really really like insight into if anybody has the answers please tell me now otherwise intelligent guesses are also welcome so i think there are a couple of interesting points and i I will actually i'm going to throw them out there and would love to hear people's reactions to them one is um this is not actually the first attempt goldman are, are making at going for retail there was a insect named approach about a year year and a half ago that that sort of mutated into into this and i i'm drawing a blank now what it was called but uh, um but it made perfect sense then and it makes perfect sense now this is not their core demographic they're not disrupting anything if it works great if it doesn't oh well their their core business is elsewhere and it comes with a heavy hitting name of goldman sachs like my my mom still doesn't exactly know what I do for a living, but she knows Goldman Sachs. So I think there is a, if we believe that the challengers are blocked by a trust component, then um, then a challenger backed by Goldman is both an incredibly powerful reassurance factor. Um, but also, I mean, sitting in the UK, that doesn't apply, but there are huge chunks of market all over the world where um, how you bank and status are very closely linked. So being able to have your money with Goldman is a thing that will mean a lot to quite a lot of to quite a lot of populations. Um, so to, to me, the fact that they did it is not a surprise. Um, the fact that they decided to export it without refining the interface and the fact that they don't have an app is a massive question because surely they can afford the advisory, right? Um, so to me, that's... Um, Maybe they don't think they need. Maybe they think they don't need an app. Maybe they think they'll just link into everybody else's current accounts via open banking. 
Lita's pulling faces at me. She's actually pulling full-on faces. I just, I, I doubt that um, you would take such a risk for the for the cost of developing a basic interface for what you just described. Um, it's a hygiene factor these days. It's not. I'm just being devil's advocate. I completely agree that it's bonkers. And when we tried to find the app earlier, we were like, where's the app? And I was like, I just don't think there is one. And, <laughs> it took and us actually, ages to come to that conclusion. Yeah, and I, I, I assumed automatically, and I actually have been um, reading up about it. I almost signed up after your enthusiastic recommendation this morning. Um, but then I thought I should actually get out of the plane and out of the airport and into the <laughs> office rather than open yet another account. Um, but I think, but I think there was a, a very interesting, very savvy move to to actually go for this segment. Um, are we looking at a case of arrogance in the detail? Mm, interesting. It's, op- it's opportunistic, clearly, because people are looking, they're searching for somewhere to, to get a better rate, and they know that. Um, and as I said to you, when I, when I was probably around 2014, I had a different interaction with Goldman Sachs, nothing to do with finance, she says. And they came out with that slogan we built, and then they just went for it, hell for leather, which I found very impressive. To get into the market and to get into the market in a space where people are feeling a little bit of the pinch and they want more from them. I mean, it's not the first time this has happened, and ING did it, I think, before, and that was sold to Barclays. Like, timing is part of it as well. That would have been 2012, maybe before that, even, maybe even earlier than that. So they chose their moment. Could other people do the same thing? Yeah. Um, is this their entry into the market, their foray into the market? And as Lita said, you, you either love them or you hate them, right? If you, if you live through anything that was Lehman connected, you just have investment banking in your brain as it's a negative thing. But if, if you're not of that mind and you see it as trust and long term and lots of money and credibility, then you might go for it. But it comes back to that status question. And it, to me, it's about the app. Uh, again, which is right, you know, that's the best part of the status symbol, really, is if you have the app on your phone that you can go, look, I have a Goldman's account. Boom. Is that still true for status symbols, though? Because I was having a conversation with somebody, we have conversations quite regularly about this. Um, why, if that's true, why does Revolut feel the need to have a shiny metal card for premium customers? Why does N26 have a tungsten card that is unscratchable? Why does Amex keep producing its gold and silver cards? So I'm not, I'm not necessarily sh- saying I completely disagree with you, but I do think that there's a physical status I thing. I think that it's still part exists. of the continuum. It's part of being able to demonstrate that you have access to something that is special. And again, um, I actually totally agree that being able to show the app is exactly the same behavior as flashing the metal card or the platinum card or whatever. And it's very particular to certain demographics, certain societies, certain segments of society. But having just moved back from the Middle East, I cannot exaggerate how important it is um, to to certain uh, extremely affluent segments of the global market. So you're right, the physical component is important. But the physical component is just another way of showing that you're part of the club. So being able to flash the app that you only have because, you know, you have a validated account does the same thing as the card. In the absence of either or both, um, that component of being able to, to, to sort of showboat a little bit um, is not there. And I would have expected that to be a big part of the appeal. Unless Goldman is deliberately trying to shed that image by going for a new brand and by targeting a different demographic. I don't know that, but I think that that's, for my mind, another option. So rather than coming out and saying Goldman Sachs has launched a retail bank in the UK, 
they've gone, Marcus is a savings account in the UK. And yeah, it's by Goldman Sachs. And yes, because it's by Goldman Sachs, it's had a huge amount of um, media interest. But maybe they're going for a different market. Maybe they think that a different demographic is beneficial to them. I think uh, you're right on the money on the different demographic. They're going for a, 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 a segment that has never been a Goldman's customer. Um, and as I said before, I think that's very deliberate because it's not cannibalizing their existing business in the slightest. However, I will disagree with you on shedding the Goldman's allure. Um, you don't go for the wealth narrative if you're trying to ditch the Goldman stamp. You don't call it Marcus. You don't say powered by Goldman Sachs. Um, I think there is a, a very conscious, particularly in the US, a very conscious packaging of um, accessible Goldman's. Mm. It will be very interesting to see how that plays out um, in the UK. I think that's going to be the interesting thing to watch is, is how does the UK audience respond to this? Because the US is one very particular set of behaviours, whereas in the, the UK, I think we have a very different relationship, if any, with Goldman Sachs. So it'll be interesting to watch. Uh, so moving on to our next story, uh, this comes from the Financial Times. Revolut is seeking to hedge the Brexit risk with a Luxembourg license. So Revolut plans to apply for an e-money license in Luxembourg, despite claiming they have no uh, plans to leave London, but to hedge their bets against any impact of Brexit. So they've applied for um, the e-money license in Luxembourg. Apparently, it only takes six months to get one. I don't know if that's just them or anybody. Um... Uh, they've also they're also still going through the licensing process of getting a banking license in Lithuania, um, so they've they've got lots of lots of different compliance things on the go, lots of different regulatory things on the go. Um, there's some interesting numbers here that Revolut has 500 employees, and their support and tech are actually mainly based in Poland and Russia, so they have um, a large number of people out that way anyway. Um, is this a surprise? I mean, the interesting thing is, obviously, an e-money license is very different to a banking license. And as they said, six months doesn't doesn't feel that long for a company like Revolut, so they might as well start now. Um, is this something we're going to see other people doing? Is this very specific to Revolut because they're based up that way anyway? I don't think there's a single FS company of any size that doesn't have a Brexit plan. It would be foolish not to. Yeah, and I think if you look at that the Brexit, you know, everybody plans for contingencies and because they have been so heavily funded recently, so much money is being flowing in, those investors will want every risk lim eliminated. So I think they're in a different league now with all that money coming in. So they must anticipate. And But to be fair, it's a slim chance that something will happen because it's in everybody's best interest to make sure that it doesn't impact fintechs. But companies of that size with those investments, they better better have their shit together and make sure that they're prepared. I mean, it's. It, I mean, I completely agree. I mean, I, I ask all the questions on the on you know to try and stimulate some debate, but I think on this one we're actually on the same page. Like, you're a fool if you haven't <laughs> thought about how you're going to to get a license, and especially as I said with the e-money license, which is not that complicated. To uh, I think the only of. surprise is that um, it's happening now. In, uh, Early, you mean? I mean late. Oh, late. I mean the, the vast majority of. Well, the, the banks have had a Brexit plan in place for about a decade, and it changed with the cataclysmic turn of events uh, of recent years. But, but the plan was there. Um, and I know that because being on a European passport, I was part of my various banks' Brexit plan if I needed to all of a sudden be on a, on a working visa, right? Um, but more strategically, it had been in place for a good decade when, when the first mumbling started. And... Uh, as the referendum was announced before it was held, quite a lot of companies with a smaller reach than Revolut 
opened uh, either subsidiaries or, or offices or, or sought a license or moved their headquarters without moving their um the, the sort of the bulk of their business. So for me, the surprise is that it's happening now, not that it's happening at all. So to counter that point, I mean, they applied for their banking license in Lithuania 18 months or two years ago. So maybe they thought they, maybe they, thought they would have that by yeah, now. Possible. And possible. that's taken a lot longer than they the thought. Plan C. Yeah. So yeah. they're actually hedging, double hedging and triple hedging by this point. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 and Luxembourg is a, is a good choice. Everybody knows that um, they have the, the, the mechanisms in place to make this as smooth and easy as possible. But I wonder about the smaller fintechs, to be honest, right? So it's one thing to have 500 employees and really have to think about the plan. And DST and, behind you yeah, and their millions and then, of dollars. <laughs> but then I just think that you, you know, if you think about the very small, you know, uh, fintechs that are out there, like one or two, three five people and stuff, how much are they going to put in the effort to actually, even if an e-money license isn't that much, you know, are they just keeping their heads down and uh, hoping that it's all going to work out? <laughs> like Angelique was saying, sort of a, you know, a bit like, oh, you know, it will be okay, you know, in the end. Interesting. I mean, yeah, we, we, I mean, Brexit is not going away, sadly. So we're going to keep talking about that for the next few months, years decades um but i'm going to move us on to our and finally story so this is from bbc news and i think this was put in um specifically for me but i may be taking it too personally so hsbc have told the a welsh singer to uh, to send a letter to them in english so singer Geraint Lovegreen um, has complained to the Welsh Language Commissioner after HSBC told him they could not respond to his letter because it was written in Welsh. The bank said they could not reply to him because it was written in a foreign language and he was asked to resend your message in English. HSBC, which describes itself as the world's local bank, insisted it worked hard to provide Welsh language services for its customers and it also worked closely with the Welsh Language Commissioner. I have many stories about the Welsh Language Commissioner. Um, a spokesman added, unfortunately in this instance the message from the customer was not picked up as being written in Welsh. If anybody's ever seen Welsh, it's quite, it's quite difficult to uh, imagine any other language it might be. Um, and as a result, was not dealt with by our Welsh-speaking team, for which we apologise. <laughs> yeah. So, first things first, um, there are very, very few people in Wales who only speak Welsh. So, to me, uh, it feels a little bit like Mr Lovegreen was making uh, a point by communicating with HSBC in Welsh. There are many people who speak it as a first language, but um, very, very few people actually only speak Welsh. Um, secondly, um, the Welsh Language Commissioner and the Welsh Language Commission um, is one of those organisations that tries very, very hard to promote the Welsh language to stop it dying out, as they should. Um, but some of the mistakes they have made in their time um, have been absolutely hilarious. If anybody remembers the um, Welsh road signs that were printed uh, saying, we're sorry, but this person is out of office, please communicate with X, as opposed to the actual translation. Um there's a serious point, which is, you know, you, you should be prepared to, to communicate with people in the medium and language which they understand. And you cannot neglect vulnerable and uh, minority groups just because they happen to be vulnerable and minority. Um, this particular story just makes me think, yeah, OK, somebody wanted to be on the news. Well, Seriously, yes, it's and great marketing from this guy. Well done, dude. Yeah, he's a singer. Yeah, well, well done him. But, but yeah. also, um, if as a bank you put a language, no matter how obscure and rarely spoken, on your list of languages spoken, then you have um, an obligation to deliver a service. However, as someone who speaks a minority language on occasion, I find that what, what you're looking at when you're dealing with a big company 
in a language that is not car- covering their, their, their core markets is that you actually get a substandard service irrespective of the translation. And I will pick on HSBC because this is, this is fairly recent. So, um, I'm Greek for my sins. Uh, I have not been in the country for 22 years, which means that every time I have to do anything with the Greek authorities or Greek banking services, it's a comedy of errors because I have, other than my passport, my birth certificate, my ID, um, I have nothing to prove that I'm a real person. I've never had a job out there. I've never had a bank account of my own. I don't have an address. But I do have a joint account with my dad. Um for which I signed when I was 11, which was a very long time ago. And a few months ago, they decided that KYC might be a problem because I'm not 11 anymore and I've been uh, of age for quite a long time. So they came up to me with a long list of things they wanted, very similar to what um, Marcus was asking from you, sort of tax paperwork from about eight countries and this and that. And I went back to them saying, GDPR, what do you need this for? How long are you keeping it for? Um, and I was sent back after, scan of a photocopy of a National Bank of Greece regulation dated 2012. And I wrote back saying GDPR. <laughs> <laughs> and I am still waiting to hear back from them. And I was six months ago. Um, now, linguistic isolation is, is a very interesting thing, right? Because Greek is not Welsh, but actually more Greek people don't speak English than Welsh people don't speak English. And it becomes a very interesting thing that ties back to the vulnerability and duty of care that we were talking about before. Um, for those giants that operate in countries where the language spoken is not the language in which they produce the vast majority of their material, how much of the service doesn't filter down? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing, particularly, and I mean, I know a lot more about Welsh than I do about Greek, but the interesting thing about Wales is that um, a lot of the service providers, there's, there's a, a split down the middle. So any, um, an, an awful lot of local councils will send you two letters for to tell you that your the day in which your rubbish will be collected has changed from Tuesday to Thursday. They'll send you one in English and one in Welsh. Um, and I know people who've tried to, to write to their local council and say, just send me one. Look at how much paper you're wasting. Like I choose, I would like to choose to receive my communications in 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 Welsh or English and they can't do that they are required to send them in both provided the information is the same in both I almost don't worry as much my concern is that the information is not the same well that, that's what I was going to say so that's the second option so the first option is that you're provided with everything every possible base is covered and um, you have it in you know both languages two separate letters whatever else um For those people who may be, you know, as we were saying, vulnerable and don't understand that they can have that choice, that they can speak to their council. On the other hand, you do have these groups that just assume everybody speaks English, which everybody does, but that's rather not the point. <laughs> so, um, you know, you will do have an awful lot of older people who have learnt Welsh as a first language. And yes, they speak English, but Welsh is still their, their mother tongue. And as they get older, that is the language in which they feel more comfortable. And again, so you're doubly vulnerable. You're an older customer of a bank um, if you live in the parts of Wales where Welsh is a native language then you are living a long way out and it's very remote so your banking services are almost certainly heavily restricted and thirdly as you said you're you're a minority language speaker so um, we can laugh at this particular example of this gentleman but there are some much broader lessons that everybody should take on board um, and there is you know the, the biggest thing that comes up over and over and again on this podcast is how much the advancement of financial services can also have a negative back impact on some of those vulnerable groups. Which is a very serious note to end on, um, but I am going to wrap the show up. Uh, so thank you so much to all of our guests for joining us. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Joy. 
Uh, so I'm on Twitter and you can contact me at, at Joy McKnight, which is uh, Joy, J-O-Y. But uh, my last name is McKnight, so it's M-A-C-K-N-I-G-H-T. Perfect. Helen? Joy makes me want a really simple name because <laughs> I'm on Twitter, but it's at H Panzerino. <laughs> Feel free to spell. We're going to do all the spelling this week. P-A-N-Z-A-R-I-N-O. Perfect. Angelique? As my last name is quite of a challenge, I keep it simple. It's Angelique for real. Just to avoid my last name. And it's for, for a number? Yes. Perfect. Um, and Lida, I mean, other than like hopefully next to me on the next few podcasts, where else can people find you? Uh, also like three desks along from you. That's true. But also on Twitter at Lida Glyptis. And as for me, I'm on Twitter at Sarah Koshansky. And you can also find my latest articles on Forbes if you're that way inclined. Um, please do join in the discussion on fintechinsidersnews.com or tweet us at fintechinsiders. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode and to really make our week, please do leave us a review. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.